I think raise your expectations. This disease has been for too long just kind of ignored and, you know, women made to feel like they just have to put up with this. My experience with hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the years is that improvement is always possible in some way. I mean, improvement can be amazing with the natural treatments on, on its own. It's, if, it's, if it's not enough, then sometimes, you know, a well done surgery plus, you know, the, uh, the natural treatment can get a patient to that kind of cross the finish line to pain free, which is my goal. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, your host, and with me today from Christchurch is naturopath Lara Bryden. Welcome, Lara. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So today I've got you talk on here to talk about endometriosis, and we're just talking off offline about the fact that this condition, you could argue, is anything but a hormonal condition or the fact that we could treat everything almost exclusively the hormones and you get some uh, amazing results. So um, would you share that view about endometriosis? Yeah, I've come to the conclusion based on my 20 years with patients that essentially endometriosis is not a hormonal condition. It's an inflammatory disease that's affected by hormones. And so that puts it in a very different category from the other period problems or hormonal problems or mental problems that we treat on a day-to-day basis. Great. So, of course, it's happening in females. So let's um, dive into that then. Inflammatory leads into the immune system. Um, Tell me about some of the, the discoveries you've found both clinically and through the research on how you now perceive the role of the immune system and inflammation occurring in endometriosis. Sure. Yeah, let's start with clinically. I mean, of course, in the early years of my practice, like everyone else, I was trying to treat it hormonally, you know, boosting progesterone and Vitex and all that approach. And I just found it really wasn't getting anywhere. So I took quite a a departure from that about 10 or 15 years ago and started looking more at the gut and treating it sort of underlying inflammatory mechanisms like I might for, you know, kind of serious inflammatory disease like inflammatory bowel disease and arthritis. And I started using some of those treatment protocols and got a lot better results with my patients. And what's interesting is that, I mean, that's been controversial for a while, the idea that endometriosis is fundamentally a disease of immune dysfunction. But I think the research is starting to bear that out. And just even there's been a little flurry of papers, even just in the last couple of years, with some pretty compelling sort of new insights into all the different ways that the immune system is not functioning properly. Yeah, it's interesting. So is that just sort of through necessity that you're trying the sort of the, the naturopathic boost progesterone, lower estrogen, you're finding you're getting traction? That is basically what led you down that path? Yeah, I think it would have been, it probably would have been certainly patients that were presenting with lots of other inflammatory symptoms and joint pain. And of course, you know, we treat the person in front of us, not the condition. So I would have just started treating those things that I could see easily and then found that endometriosis also responded quite well. So for me, that was one of the early clues. And I've been trying to keep an eye on the research as well through the yeah. years. You know, it's an enigmatic disease. I think everyone will agree with that. It's it, w- We would not be doing you know, anyone a service here to oversimplify it today. It's, you know, I think we're talking about some immune aspects that have been neglected, but 
that's not to say those are the only things happening with endometriosis. It's quite a complex condition. Absolutely. All right, well, let's uh, put our, our researcher hat on now and dive yeah. into the, the PubMed citations that you, you sent me. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about the immune system. What are some of the, the overarching themes you've, you've gathered from the research to date on the dysfunction that is endometriosis? Yeah, so what I'm reading in the research, and, and, and you and I both done our homework prior to this conversation, looked at about, I think, about four or five papers. We can share those in the notes, I think, for listeners Absolutely. so they yep, can... Yep they can dive into them themselves. But sort of a recurring theme that I'm seeing is um, in the peritoneal cavity, so locally to where the endometriosis is growing, you know, a reduction in natural killer cell, natural killer cell um, activity, at least, and a reduction in what's called innate immunity. So that immune system is not cleaning up the debris of the endometrial lesions the way it should be. And at the same time, there seems to be an activation of what's called adaptive immunity, which is the B cells and the T cells potentially being overactive, producing more inflammatory cytokines, except for one little group of T cells, which are quite an interesting group called um, T reg cells, which are the, the regulatory part of the, the adaptive um, branch of the immune system. So I kind of think of T reg cells as like, the generals of the immune system you know mm. they try to keep everyone in ranks everyone behaving and there definitely does seem to be something a little weird going on with t-reg cells in women with endometriosis yeah um so just take a step back i suppose um so there's that theory about the, the retrograde flood that's been around for almost 100 years that this is what uh triggers the uh, endometriosis but the, the clear counter argument is that, that that occurs in in every woman essentially who's menstruating um, so this is where the immune system could fit in, that the immune system is here to try and clean up all this debris and mess as a, a normal healing process. But in endometriosis, part of it could be the fact that these immune cells aren't behaving as, as normal and they're almost creating like an autoimmune response where it's creating heightened inflammation and tissue damage. Would yeah, yeah the, the word autoimmune is, is very controversial with <laughs> endometriosis. Yeah, yeah. So let's go on record and say, you know, I don't know if we have to use that word. We will just say there's definitely something going on that's not as it would be in someone without the disease. But just I might just respond to what you said about the retrograde menstruation, because my understanding from the research is that theory is really falling out of favor. You know, I don't yeah. I don't think it's dead yet, but it's getting close <laughs> to being dead in the water. It's like there's just so many lines of evidence that point against it. I mean, one of the things you said was that, you know, most women do have some retrograde and uh, menstruation, but obviously most many women don't um, develop endometriosis. And also, intriguingly, there have been cases of endometriosis in, well, in fetuses, you know, document or wow. not cases, but like documented um, the presence of endometriosis lesions in, in fetuses, in, um, in children, and interestingly, in men. There are a couple of cases in the literature where um, and there was one quite recently, which I shared on social media, of a, of a case of abdominal pain in a man, and it turned out to be active endometriosis. So that really does speak to the fact that it's probably laid down. It may There's an argument that it may be laid down during fetal development. I mean, there may also be some degree of retrograde menstruation that, as you say, the immune system then fails to clean up. Yeah, sure. Um, just with that autoimmune story, that I think yeah. that sometimes does throw people in clinic as soon as there's autoantibodies present that sort of flips people's mode to thinking it's all about um, autoimmunity. 
So do you consider that? Do you measure any autoantibodies, or just do you sort of view it as a a consequence of the disorder? And if you treat the inflammation or the Tregs and the auto autoantibodies will naturally decay anyway. Yeah. Well, one of the papers that you and I looked at is called altered immunity and endometriosis, which came first. You know, does the endometriosis drive the the presence of the abnormal immune markers or vice versa. And in that paper, I think that's where they do talk about the presence of the autoantibodies and how that may or may not be an initiating factor. There's certainly, they are present. And they do say actually that those autoantibodies against the endometrial lesions themselves may be useful as a future test, which I think would be, because yeah. one of the yeah. great, the things we really do need for endometriosis is a non-invasive way of testing so potentially many some of some or you know of these various immune markers could be used for testing as well interesting yeah. all right yeah. well um we might go through a few other drivers and we'll come back to what you're currently doing for for testing yeah. and also treatment so the other really fascinating area um no surprise is the microbiome seems to be popping its head up here again in uh, endometriosis. So could you give us a, a snapshot of the, the world of the microbiome and its link with endometriosis? Yeah. First thing to say, the microbiome is not just the gut. We have a microbiome everywhere in our body. There's a microbiome in, obviously, in the, in the uterus itself, in the endometrium, in the peritoneal cavity, in the vagina, obviously. And that does seem to be quite important for endometriosis, the direct but sort of um, the bacteria that are in close contact with the endometrial lesions. And also, of course, then there is the gut microbiome and the way that it, I might venture to say, directs the immune system in general, you know, it has a huge impact on yeah. inflammation. So we can, as clinicians, we can start to intervene in, in all those areas, you know, in the different parts of the microbiome in the body. In one of the papers that we looked at, which was about, the new hypothesis of bacterial contamination and how that might be an initiating factor in endometriosis. They make the point right at the end of the paper that you know a lot of this their findings point to potentially the use for oral or vaginal antibiotics or antimicrobials or probiotics, which I mean that's just exactly something that we can start to implement straight away. I'll, I'll just explain that paper. So what they found is that women with um, endometriosis have, I think it was four to six times higher, more gram-negative bacteria in their menstrual fluid and their peritoneal fluid compared to women without the disease. So that's bacteria like E. coli. And of course, they make something called LPS, which I know your listeners probably know of. It's an endotoxin. It's very upsetting to the immune system. And so in this paper, they make the bold assertion that the presence of those bacteria might be one of the initial initiating factors of the disease. Mm, fascinating. So, yeah, the LPS is thought to stimulate things like the mast cells, which we heard from um, Dr. Tanya Dempsey at Congress about, and other immune cells to, to create this heightened inflammatory response locally. Um, so, and there was other lines of evidence that you've presented elsewhere about like endometriitis and using conventional antibiotics. Is there, yeah. there, there's other sort of supporting evidence to, to add to this theory. Is that correct? Yeah. So there, it's, it's long been known, I think, that um, women with a pelvic infection or endometriitis, which is you know an infection of the endometrium, are more prone to endometriosis. There seems to be a correlation there. And yeah, there was one research I found that where they had already documented that the use of antibiotics can relieve 
the condition, not cure, but, you know, certainly give some relief. And I'll just say straight away, that's actually something I've been using in my practice for quite a while, quite a number of years, not with every endometriosis patient, but I do, depending on the presenting picture, I will look at fairly early in the process doing a course of maybe like an eight week course of antimicrobial herbal herbs, both for potentially for if there's an, uh, you know, an issue of SIBO or something going on with the gut, but also with the intention that that can have a broader antimicrobial effect potentially in the endometrium as well. Sure. Okay, so moving back to the, the main area we focus with the microbiome, the, the gut, there seems to be a fair bit of research that endometriosis sufferers also present with IBS. Um, have you found that, uh, and what's your view on this sort of connection? Is it just two separate conditions, or do you think there's an overarching uh, um, driver going on there? Yeah, that's a very good question. Look, I think it's, I don't think, um, I suspect the underlying issue with the IBS, uh, the dysbiosis, is driving the endometriosis. It's not causing it, but, you know, once once some other things are set up for endometriosis to develop, it's certainly not going to help to have active inflammation coming from the gut, especially when yeah. it's in quite close proximity. There's a lot of overlap between the two conditions because, of course, endometriosis itself causes bowel problems. So it's quite it can be quite tricky in clinic to tease that apart. You know, which came first? Is the, the bowel mm. problem driving the endometriosis or is the endometriosis causing the majority of the bowel symptoms? We have one recent paper out of New Zealand called Endometriosis in Patients with Irritable Bowel Syndrome. It was a clinical study where they use the low FODMAP diet, um, yes. which I do like, but in the short term. <laughs> I don't really yeah. like that in the long term. But yes, they did do that intervention, and they were able to observe reduced endometriosis symptoms. And in the paper, they don't really give a mechanism. They basically, I think, just talk about you know the heightened sensitivity you know, of, of the of the immune system or of the nervous system in the general area of the pelvis and how there can be a bit of crosstalk between yeah. the conditions. Yeah, yeah, I, I did come across that research. And the other one we, we've looked at briefly is the the other study where they put people on a low FODMAP diet with IBS. Um, these weren't necessarily endometriosis sufferers, but they noticed a, a, a significant eightfold, I think, reduction in plasma histamine so maybe wow. yeah, reducing the histamine can help with um, those mast cells and other immune cells in the endometrium. Absolutely. So yeah. um, now let's move on to, so we've covered a few drivers there, the immune derangement, the LPS. Um, although hormones systemically might not be an issue, there is, it's well known, I believe, that the endometrial tissue manufacture excessive estrogen yeah. in the site. So now let's get to testing before uh, sure. we treat the patients. Sure. What's in your toolkit uh, currently? Do you do salivary hormones? Do you do a gut microbiome check? How would you go through a general sort of workup with a patient? Yeah, well, to be honest, currently for myself, for my own clinical work with endometriosis, I'm basing it mostly on the symptom picture. Yeah. I yep. don't, I would, you know what I, What we need, what I think would be the thing that's coming is a, um, a menstrual fluid um, test. Microbi like yeah. a test of the bacteria present in the menstrual fluid and maybe some of the other markers, that's going to give us a better insight into the condition. I don't, I mean, I would do blood tests generally just to see, you know, how they are. I might check for um, other markers of inflammation, such as thyroid antibodies, for example, and gluten. Certainly, I would always rule out, try to get a sense of where someone's at with gluten sensitivity and rule out celiac disease because we know that an underlying 
problem with gluten can be a very strong driver of inflammation. But beyond that, I don't, I just don't have a lot of tests that I find that useful. I, it's it's symptom picture and it's, um, you know, it's it's a little bit of just getting started on some treatment and seeing what helps. You know, what, how they start to respond. I think I can usually tell quite a lot in the first couple months what that's gonna what you know what that's gonna be like how rapidly yeah. they improve. I look for uh, sorry to interrupt. I look for things in the clinical history like a. Um, I think I'm going to be presenting a case, or I've shared a case into the, the seminar coming up about a patient of mine who had a recent episode of gastro when she was overseas, and how that just kind of threw her gut into a long-term, well, over a couple of years, state of dysbiosis, and how that correlated in her case with a pronounced worsening of the endometriosis. And so straight away, I could see that that's, in her case, where we needed to start. Yeah. Any other indications to, to begin with antimicrobials? Any, so obviously gut signs, but any sort of menstrual signs or any other tip-offs that you'd be um, considering heading in first with antimicrobials? I, mean, I, I, think, I guess other signs of that kind of deep inflammation, like joint pain, you know, things like that, but um, coming up, um, a history of, and you could certainly do a screen for things like Epstein-Barr and other um, exposure to microbes. And oh, sorry, yeah, I do, I will, depending on the patient, like in this patient, the case that I just referred to, I did do a screen of um, just a, a PCR test gut for parasites, for existing, like to rule out blastocystis right. and things like that. In her case, she didn't have that. So, um, yeah, and then, okay. and then, you know, obviously make sure it's safe to proceed with antimicrobial and just give it. That's been my approach. <laughs> it's, sure. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on now to what uh, treatments you, you've got on offer for patients mm. with endometriosis. Have you got any sort of core ones you go to that you essentially use in almost all cases? All of my endometriosis patients come off cow's dairy at least for a few months because I find of all the inflammatory foods, potentially inflammatory foods, I find cow's dairy seems to be the most consistent with endometriosis. I would then look at avoiding gluten and I'll just say for your listeners that I've had some feedback from endometriosis patients that for that sometimes maybe maybe in about one in three or one in four cases eggs can be a potentially an immune disruptor and seem to be a driver for endometriosis so I think the diet is quite important I'll often start with the diet plus a course of the antimicrobials plus I'll put in place very often zinc and selenium for their immune modulating benefits. And actually, Nathan, just back to the testing, I will often kind of screen, get a baseline plasma zinc and selenium just to see where they're okay. at with those nutrients. Because sure. as you know, yeah. they're often deficient. Yes, yeah. Uh, so they're more for the modulating, say, the Tregs and the, yeah. and the immune system. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you even consider any sort of hormonal therapies, modulation? Well, depending on the patient, and the situation, I, I'll just say for what it's worth, you know, this is not exactly a naturopathic prescription, but I, I will encourage them to perhaps speak to their doctor about obtaining some body identical progesterone, which is the now in Australia, it's, I mean, it's a bioidentical progesterone. It's now available as Prometrium. I do think it's worth mentioning. It's not my, the, my first go-to, mm-hmm. and it is a prescription item, but it's worth people clinicians knowing about it because quite possibly you know the patient is under pressure to take some kind of progestin drug and 
I find the the progesterone is actually giving way better results than I even imagined. You know, I don't think I've just at the start, we both agreed that hormone imbalance is not, I don't think the main reason for endometriosis, but certainly that um, once the disease is in motion, some natural progesterone can give relief and it's working in a couple of ways. I think it does help to reduce the lesion growth, the growth of the lesions themselves. But some of that, one of the papers I have looked at suggests that it also, progesterone also has quite a powerful immune modulating effect. So it in itself, you know, can reduce um, the production of some of those unwanted inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. And there's quite a strong degree of what's called progesterone resistance with within the endometriosis lesions. So you, you kind of need to, I guess, overwhelm that, you know, give a higher than ah, right. normal dose. Now, I don't, I haven't seen the same benefits with giving progesterone boosting herbs like Vitex. I just haven't seen that. And actually, as much as I love Vitex as a herbal medicine for lots of other things, I'm quite cautious with it for endometriosis because as part of its action, it stimulates the HPO or the ovarian axis. And that can actually, I find, lead to perhaps, you know, at least transient levels of higher estrogen. And you don't really want that. You want to smooth out estrogen as estradiol as much as possible, because although it's pretty clear that estradiol does not cause the condition, it certainly worsens it. And there are, you know, ways we can, various ways we can um, do to keep that healthy. One relates back to the microbiome, because the microbiome is one of its jobs is to successfully and safely clear estradiol from the body mm. to clear the estrogen metabolites. And so that's why we want a bowel that's functioning, a bowel with fewer gram-negative bacteria so that they're not making as much of the what's called beta-glucuronidase. Your listeners probably know about that. That's a, um, a microbe metabolite um, or some microbe enzyme that um, breaks up uh, the um, detoxification products of estrogen and pushes estrogen back into the system. So yeah, sure. that's actually quite important. And the, the supplement I used to help with that is um, which I, is calcium deglucrate. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of an unsung hero. It's become uh, one what, of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about um, immune modulators, anti-inflammatories? I'll go for the low-hanging fruit, curcumin, vitamin yeah. D. Yeah. Any any of those you use in endometriosis? All the time. So curcumin I use, and also my new favorite is. And acetylcysteine. It, yes. It's kind of like the darling of everything right now. I guess it, it <laughs> just seems to have so many good actions. Of course, it's the precursor to glutathione, which is in itself an immune modulator. It upregulates the natural killer cells, which you need with endometriosis. And it also upregulates the Treg cells, who we spoke about ah. right at the beginning, the ones who are supposed to be the generals, who are supposed to be keeping all the other immune cells in ranks. What sort of doses are you prescribing with an SA? Yeah, so I tend to give, I guess, 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it does have a, my only precaution is that, it, which I'm sure your listeners know, but it has a thinning action on the stomach lining. So if I think someone's going to be on it long term, I just want to watch that, make sure they're not having any, you know, experiencing any stomach discomfort from it. But it has lots of other side benefits, like it's good for mood, you know, it's um, yeah. good for detoxification. Generally, yeah, uh, and there was a I think a, a recent clinical trial using NAC in endometriosis patients, and I believe the ones that received it, um, a large portion of them cancelled their um, laparoscopy because they, the benefits they received were so great. Yeah, yeah. So it's getting good clinical support. 
Yeah. All right. Um, one of the areas where NAC works on, which makes a nice segue, is an antioxidant. And there is um, some controversy about iron generating free radical damage in endometriosis um, and reports of excessive iron in, in women suffering endometriosis. Can you just give us a, a snapshot of, of the, the landscape there with iron? Yeah, my understanding is that is a, a local effect in the peritoneal cavity from the, the endometriosis lesions themselves and sort of a breakdown, you know, because they bleed basically. They, you know, they release um, yeah. team into the pelvis so of course you're going to be seeing iron locally and it it it, it increases oxidative stress so there have been a couple of papers proposing that presence of iron as one of the drivers of endometriosis and iron is inflammatory i mean it iron is does increase oxidative stress which is why we never want our patients to have excess iron in terms of you know what that means for us as clinicians, like should we be able to give an iron supplement? I still do, like if it's indicated, if you know as part of my workup, if I can identify iron deficiency, then I will still give a gentle oral supplement of iron. I do worry a bit about the iron infusions that a lot of patients have now. Right. I yep. I've had a couple of anecdotal stories that that has flared up endometriosis. There's certainly no research about that. But I guess with my own patients, if they can get their levels up with oral supplements, I would prefer that and not take the risk of exposing them to the higher level of iron that you'd get from an infusion. So. Okay, yeah, I, I tend to agree with all those yeah. statements. Yeah, and actually one more thing is the other thing we can do to help people who are suffering with iron deficiency is just help them to reduce the flow because heavy flow can be one of the symptoms of endometriosis. So... Turmeric, the curcumin, can help with that. I find it has quite a profound flow-reducing effect. Okay. The progesterone capsules can help with that. And so can calcium deglucrate, which, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, which just leads on to another question um, addressing certain symptoms of endometriosis. We just covered off flow. What about with pain? That's obviously one of the, the biggest um, complaints, obviously, with these sufferers. Do you do um, anything specific there? All of this is for pain. So, you know, yeah. when we spoke at the beginning, you know, what is my, what is the main part of my assessment? It is about quantifying pain, getting a sense of pain. That is something that is very important to do for your patients because very often, very often, you know, they've been, their pain has been kind of downplayed and dismissed. So perhaps they haven't even been heard about how much pain they're mm. in. So I will... I quantify it, you know, how many days of pain, how many painkillers do you take? Do the painkillers actually help or do you still have pain on top of that? You know, is, is the pain so bad that you can't go to school or to work? And I do every appointment, I'll do sort of a quantification of that and then use that as one of my main barometers of, you know, response to treatment. And it, we, uh, my expectation is patients should get to the place of almost no pain. I, that is my new. That's you know. I try. I'm trying to raise the bar around period yeah, health nice. and no yeah. pain. Pe periods should not be painful, even with endometriosis. So one way or the other, we've got to help patients to get there. Some patients, it might mean that surgery is part of their treatment protocol if their disease is that advanced. The other thing that is really worth mentioning about pain is that it's not with endometriosis the pain is not always just from the lesions themselves yes there can be um muscle spasm chronic spasm that gets set right. up in the pelvis that can be a source of pain even once once the disease has calmed down so that's important to kind of know about i guess to try to refer 
to physiotherapists. I'm just working through that myself now. That hasn't, I think, been on my radar as much as it should Mm. be. And the other source of pain is the adhesions that you get from the disease itself and post-surgery. So we need, as clinicians, we need ways to help people prevent and possibly soften some of those adhesions. That's a little bit harder to do. I do use something called castor oil packs with my patients. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that. That's a topical application of castor oil with heat. And my understanding is, I don't know how much research there is, but my understanding is it's a fairly straightforward mechanism that it penetrates into the, you know, through the skin and does reduce inflammation and potentially reduce adhesions. Yeah, nice. So it's really a holistic approach there with other other modalities. Just yeah. with the, um, the pain you said you were mentioning, um, do you use an app or how do you quantify that? Sounds like yeah. a really good tool to to do. And what sort of time, and as I said, people, some women can be really advanced, but uh, what sort of time to effect yeah. do you expect to see that, those reductions? Yeah, both good questions. In terms of an app, that would be a great idea. I don't currently <laughs> use an app with my patients, but, you know, I think there are there are different trackers out there now, and I think I would like to start to use that. I just keep it in my handwritten notes, you know, just kind of refer back through my little summary of where they're at. And then I'd say to them, okay, well, you know, three months ago you said this, and then that's a good, you know, that gives the patient a good kind of sense of how far they've come. With a, with a, let's say a moderately severe case, I would say something like, you know, okay, we're putting in place this treatment. We can, you know, touch base after six weeks just to see how you're going. But at, at the three month mark, when we meet again, I would expect to see, for example, maybe 50% reduction in pain. Okay. That might be something common that I'd say. It might, I, I'm often quite conservative with my <laughs> managing yeah, yeah, expectations, yeah. so it might be a lot better than that. But if I get to the three-month mark and they're not 50% then better, then I feel there's something else that needs to be done. Um, the treatment certainly needs to be adjusted at that point. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, good to, what do they say, over under-promise and over-deliver. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I might just start to summarise here. It doesn't seem to be like a, a huge hormonal um, component or driver. Um, also, there's probably not a single you know, villain nor hero when it comes to endometriosis, not just microbiome or immune system. So we have to go through all those. You really spelt out some nice tips there to use holistic therapy, some nice little uh, product uh, ingredients like calcium D-glucarate and turmeric. Um, so, you know, for the, the practitioner listening, any other, you know, big picture comments you want to make about endometriosis, how they tackle it um, yeah. moving forward? Well, I do just want to respond about, about estrogen again specifically. So it is definitely a driver. Um, there's no question that it's a driver. Yeah. It, um, it actually drives inflammation itself. It, it, there's one of the papers that explores a kind of um, feed-forward little interaction it has with the LPS toxins. So. Yes. And it, as you said, estrogen increases histamine. So estrogen, estradiol pushes inflammation. And there's no question it's a driver. The, the problem is, I mean, the conventional approach has been to, in addition to surgery, has been to essentially all they do is try to shut down estrogen. Yeah. That's their, that's the whole plan. And they use various drugs for that, including hormonal birth control. And my view is that's just not good enough. You know, there's so many other things we could be doing. On the one hand, and and also to say, natural treatment just cannot shut down estrogen the way conventional treatment does. Yeah, so there's really no point in kind of trying that route too much. Although I think we can incorporate calcium deglucrate to some extent um, to to stabilize estrogen. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Yeah, I guess my takeaway for all the clinicians listening and I guess if there's any patients listening as well and any endometriosis sufferers, this, I think, raise your expectations. This disease has been for too long just kind of ignored and, you know, women made to feel like they just have to put up with this. My experience with hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the years is that improvement is always possible in some way. I mean, improvement can be amazing with the natural treatments on, on its own. It's, if, it's, if it's not enough, then sometimes, you know, a well-done surgery plus, you know, the, uh, the natural treatment can get a patient to that kind of cross the finish line to pain-free, which is my goal. Oh, brilliant. Uh, which we'll move on now to your book. Uh, you, We were lucky enough to have you attend our uh, evening session at Congress this year and you were like a rock star. You had a, a long line <laughs> of people lining up for a book signing. Yeah. I believe you've just released the second, third edition of the Period Repair yeah. Manual. Yeah, it's essentially the second edition. It's um, Period Repair Manual, and Pan Macmillan has released it now. So it's in Australia and New Zealand. It's in all shops, which is great. So a patient told me that they found it in Big W, which is I just love that it's out there <laughs> and you know reaching everyone. Um, it's a book that I wrote it for women, for the lay person, the lay woman, um, so that it could help everyone. But I've had a lot of great feedback from naturopaths and doctors and different clinicians who just say that it, you know, it helps them as kind of a framework to think through some of the different period problems, not just endometriosis, but, you know, PCOS and perimenopause and, and kind of, um, put in place an action plan using some fairly simple treatments. Great. So um, bookstores and also online, you can order online? Yes, of yeah. course, yeah. Yeah. Great, and you've been um, very generous and you've uh, shared a couple of case studies with us we're going to feature in our current seminar and also you're going to be appearing as a, a special little cameo guest down in Christchurch to yeah. uh, talk through your case studies and maybe answer a few questions as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be great. Oh, brilliant. Lara, it's been a pleasure and I can see why I was getting so many, much pressure from everybody to uh, try and <laughs> slot you into Congress, but I really had a, a full agenda. I really uh, admire time. the way you're... Um, you're really sort of thinking your way through the case and uh, through the condition and a real champion for, you know, promoting this, that we can make some, some great improvements and restore quality of life to these patients. Well, thanks so much, Nathan. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Lara, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.